All right. Well, this is, this is promising to be fun here. Uh, we're actually going to do Matthew 6, if that's okay with everyone. Uh, Matthew 6, um, 9, Jesus gave his disciples some instructions on how to pray. And this is what he told them. He said, when you pray, pray like this. Uh, our, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You might have heard the next part, which a later scribe added, um, sure caught up in the act of worship. Uh, and we can pray these words too, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Uh, please bow your heads with me. Father, we pray that your name would be made much of, that your name would be held as holy, righteous, and good. Let your kingdom break into our lives and the lives of those who live in this community, this world. Ultimately, we look forward to your heavenly kingdom being established on earth. Father, you know what we need, our daily bread, and we boldly ask you to provide it not the answer to our every whim, but that you would su supply our every need physically, spiritually, emotionally. Forgive our sins and our transgressions. God, give us the grace to truly forgive others. Keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. God, we confess that you are sovereign and that you are good. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, the fellowship of your spirit. You are sufficient for every need. We pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you'd work in our hearts and the hearts of all who live in this community. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we are uh, starting a new series today, and uh, it is a series based on Ezra Nehemiah, and we're going to call it Ezra Nehemiah. Um, if you're looking for Ezra Nehemiah in your Bible, it is after 2 Chronicles and before Esther. In your Old Testament, um, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book uh, called Ezra, and around 100 AD, one of our church fathers decided to uh, put it into two books. So there was First and Second Ezra, which eventually became Ezra and Nehemiah. It's, it's one work, uh, but it is two books. Um, Ezra and Nehemiah are not the most often preached books of the Bible. I don't know when the last time you have heard a message on Ezra and Nehemiah was, but uh, they are a very fitting sequel to what we just went through in First and Second Kings, Kings and Kingdoms. Um, they're about the continuing history of Israel after the exile. So First and Second Kings, we discovered that God raised up a kingdom uh, with an ideal king named David, and then that kingdom split into the north and northern and southern kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom was eventually conquered by the Assyrians, um, and uh, people were deported, new people were brought in. Later, the southern kingdom of Judah was, uh, was conquered by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians were overrun by the Persians. And so Ezra and Nehemiah is the sequel where the kingdom is actually restored. Now, right about now, you might be thinking... Uh, why should I care about this ancient history, this ancient biblical history? What does it have to do with me? And uh, that's a good question. Um, 
I quite like the quote from Philip Yancey, uh, apart from the Old Testament, we will also have an impoverished, we will always have an impoverished view of God. God is not a philosophical construct, but a person who acts in history. And I might add that God works in your history and my history as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to learn some fantastic truths about our God, the impact that those truths have on our lives. But I thought maybe we could have some fun along the way. We almost had some fun too early here. Um, so to get us in the mood for these ancient writings, I put together a short explanatory video. And let's turn these front lights off so they can see a little bit better. I know some of you are thinking this pastor definitely has too much time on his hands. <laughs> and I was convicted that I will probably never do this again. It was more work than I thought to do that little video. But uh, <clears throat> and I thought it could be, uh, instead of Return of the Jedi, it could be Return of the Jews, but uh, I'm not sure that works either. Um, but what do you remember from this video regarding the northern tribes? Anybody? Anybody remember or get something out of the, the northern tribes from what you read? What's that? They intermarried. Yeah, that was, that's a good one. Uh, they intermarried, and, uh, and it, it caused some problems. How about the southern kingdom? I got to speak loud. Yeah, they were invaded, invaded by the Babylonians. Good. And, the, yeah, and later the Persians. Uh, so good. Yeah, we, uh, so it, it was a, uh, hopefully a painless way of, of uh, learning some things. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I, I did promise that we would learn some fantastic truths about the nature of God. And what we're going to learn from, uh, from the, the sequel to all of this, which is Ezra and Nehemiah, is that the first truth is that God is sovereign. We have a sovereign God, the King of kings, Lord of lords. The second truth is God has a heart for restoration. So that's, that's sort of our outline of this morning. Uh, God is sovereign, and God has a heart for restoration. Now, <clears throat> let's begin our time by putting ourselves in the sandals of the exiles. Uh, so before we look at the decree of Cyrus, let's examine the predicament of the Jews who had been exiled. Uh, now imagine being forced from your land. Uh, imagine being forced from your home, which was destroyed, the schools are destroyed, place of worship was destroyed. Uh, you were exiled and sent to another land, uh, which you had not known before. Perhaps people speak a different language, and, and you're sent out. And you have to adjust to a completely new, uh, a new surroundings, uh, the way things work are differently. You didn't want to be sent out forcibly. And by the way, people from back home had been killed and raped and all sorts of terrible things had taken place back home. And now you're in a foreign land. Um, we know that the life of the Jews in Babylon was sustainable. Um, <clears throat> they were not made, all made slaves, the forced labor. The prophet Ezekiel, probably exiled under Jehoiachin, uh, settled by the Kebar River, uh, an irrigation canal near, near Nippur. He was married from Ezekiel 24:18, and he had his own house, Ezekiel 8:1. Another important historical source of information uh, were the Marashu tablets. Anyone read those lately? Um, they were found in the late 1800s. We learned that Jews appeared as contracting parties, agents, witnesses, collectors of taxes, royal officials. They served in the military, ran farms, managed and ma managed the royal household. And so <clears throat> they seem to have had similar 
um, opportunities and uh, a social status to other people in that area. They, they weren't, um, they weren't uh, all terribly oppressed once they uh, were relocated. So why should they go back? What would be the desire for them to return after they'd been there for decades, even though they'd been forcibly deported? Longman and Garland write, the Jews were hardly alone in experiencing the hardships of enforced exile, nor were they alone in attempting to maintain their identity inasmuch as groups such as the Egyptians also tried to do so. But of all of them, with the exception of the Jews, were eventually assimilated and disappeared as recognizable entities. F. All remarks, the outstanding survival of the Jews in Babylonia as an entity in exile in the subsequent period, in contrast to the disappearance of all the other foreign ethnic groups there, remains, however, a problem demanding further explanation. In other words, we can't figure it out. How did, how did this ethnicity stay together? How did they not get assimilated like the other people groups? We don't understand. And they go on, no doubt the, um, the key to their survival was their faith in God, though having momentarily punished them, was nonetheless a faithful covenant-keeping Lord who would watch over them even in a foreign diaspora and restore them to their holy land. So the people actually had a desire to return to the land. The, the Jewish people wanted to return to, to, uh, to Israel, as it became known. By the way, uh, as we move into uh, this, this latter part, as we move out of uh, First and Second Kings, the word Israel becomes more inclusive of all of Israel. That gets confusing sometimes if you're reading through the Bible and all of a sudden, at first, Israel is just referring to the northern tribes, and then it becomes sort of all of, you know, whatever's left of, of uh, Judah and Israel. But at this point, when we speak of Israel, we're talking about um, all of Israel, Judah, the northern tribes, whatever, whatever is left uh, and, and still identifiable as Israelites. And so the people wanted to return, but they didn't have permission from the king. They didn't have resources. They, everything was just completely destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The walls destroyed. Their homes were destroyed. Uh, and so there were a lot of obstacles for them to return. But the Jews had uh, something they could cling to during their exile. They had a promise that they would return, that God had promised uh, through the prophets who were talking about all the terrible things that would happen to the Jewish people because of their idolatry, but also offered a promise that they're going to be able to return. You're going to be restored eventually. And so they waited, they worshiped, and when the time came, they went. And so Ezra uh, 1, 1 through 2, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, that it might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up in the spirit of, Cyr uh, of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem which is in Judah. Now, if you remember, the Babylonians originally conquered Jerusalem. They're the ones who uh, destroyed everything that was left of Jerusalem. 
And, but the book of Daniel records that the Persians later conquered the Babylonians. And the Old Testament is full of prophecy, much of it condemning evil that was taking place. But amidst all the condemnation was promise of restoration. And so the prophet Jeremiah promised that Israel would be restored within 70 years. And after the Persians took over from the Babylonians, that restoration began to take place. I know this is a lot of history, but it's important background. So I want you to look at something with me here. Um, if we can move to the next uh, slide here. This is the Cyrus Cylinder. It was discovered in 1879, and uh, some historians believe the Cyrus Cylinder to be uh, Persian propaganda, but, uh, and there's a lot of boasting that takes place on it. Um, people have different theories, but essentially it's a big barrel with a lot of cuneiform writing on it. Um, King Cyrus indicates on this cylinder that he will return the native people back to the places they came from. Uh, so this article agrees with what's written in scripture. This is an extra biblical, it's not part of a Bible, but it, it is a, an uh, ancient artifact that agrees with what's written in scripture. Um, but who do you think Cyrus credits for his decision and his success? Well, it's not the one true God according to the Jews. It's not Yahweh. Uh, he has sort of an affiliation for Marduk and for other gods. Cyrus is not a, uh, he's not a, uh, a Yahweh follower. He's not following the Lord. Uh, and yet, he's going to return uh, the Jews. So, and, and then, by the way, he also considers himself a god. So how do we account for this discrepancy that, uh, that the, ba um, the Persians conquered the Babylonians, Cyrus returned the Jews to their homeland, just as the prophets foretold, but Cyrus is definitely not a, a follower of the one true God. Um, <clears throat> and, and listen to this. This is the prophet Jeremiah. So this is the prophecy that the Jews are clinging to. This is from Jeremiah 25:11. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. After the 70 years are complete, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words I have uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah has prophesied against the nations. So it turns out Cyrus acted uh, according to Scripture, but unknowingly, uh, he fulfilled everything. Uh, the, the Persians destroyed the Babylonians, just as Scripture foretold. Uh, people are being uh, restored in three different waves to Jerusalem, just as Scripture foretold. The words of Jeremiah are coming true. Somehow God worked on the heart of Cyrus to do these things, but Cyrus appears to not understand the big picture. He's just doing what God has commanded. So how do we, how do we think about these things? How is that possible? And I think the answer to this can be found in Proverbs 25.1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. God doesn't need Cyrus to believe in him. Cyrus will do the Lord's bidding regardless because the Lord is king of kings, not Cyrus. So who stirred up the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia? God did. 
But not just any God, the God who revealed himself in the burning bush to Moses, the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the God of David, the name behind the capitalized word Lord. If you notice in your Bible, sometimes Lord is capitalized. Whenever it is, that's the, the revealed name of God, Yahweh. Uh, this is the God. So write this down or, if, if, or have this in your head. God is sovereign. He worked in history. We've got, we've got a, um, a scroll that shows that. We've got scripture. All these things fit together. And we know that God worked in history over the course of centuries for all these things to take place. His sovereignty is not dependent upon our king or culture. Our God can turn the heart of the king any direction he wants. So it doesn't matter if the king's name is Clinton or Bush or Obama or Trump, kings that we love or hate. God can and will use world leaders according to his purpose. And this truth led the ancient Israelites to pray, to read scripture, to seek the sovereign God who holds the heart of kings and queens in his hands, and it should cause us to do the same. We have a great ability here in the United States of America to vote. We can vote for the candidate we believe in. And I, I won't ask for a show of hands on how many times you have voted and not gotten the king or queen you wanted whether it's the king of queen of Spring Grove or the, or the one of uh, the United States of America. And of course, we don't call them kings and queens. We call them presidents and mayors and governors and, and the like. But God is sovereign. And so perhaps more powerful than your vote is your prayer for this nation, for God sovereignly, uh, to sovereignly act in our nation according to his good will, according to his big picture, which we don't understand that his name would be glorified and for the restoration of people, for the blessing of all people. So <clears throat> Ezra 1.1 again, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah that might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's the Lord who did it. And what did the king of Persia decree? He said, go back, build the house of the Lord, and this is going to be a huge undertaking. There are going to be lots of resources that are required for this that the, that the people don't have at this point. Uh, where are those resources going to come from? Uh, in verse 4, uh, it appears that people who currently live in that place are going to uh, offer their resources. In verse 6, uh, neighbors in exile. Uh, in verse 7, the king of Persia himself is going to take costly items that were taken from the temple under Babylon and return them so that the, they can go and be a part of the temple. And so the resources are going to come from various sources but they are made available not because of the neighbors, not because of the people who lived in the, uh, the, the land where they'd be returning, not because of King Cyrus, but because the king of kings opened the storehouse with his generosity and made it possible for this to happen because God's sovereignty includes everything that we own. And then if you skip to the, towards the end of the second chapter, uh, it, it tells us that um, that at the very end, people 
we're, we're giving. In verse um, uh, 268, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the family gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site according to their ability they gave to the treasury for this work. And then it describes all the giving that, that they did. And so the, the, the people gave. But it's important for us to understand that underlying the gifts of the people, underlying the command of Cyrus, underlying everything that took place for the restoration for the Jews into Jerusalem was the sovereignty of God. Now, God is sovereign, but God also has a heart for restoration. And this sovereign king has consistently shown himself to restore peoples. And oftentimes, he'll restore a remnant. Not everyone went to go and, and be a part of Jerusalem, only the people who God stirred up in their heart, and they, they went and returned. Um, some people um, stayed in, in, uh, in Babylon. Not everyone came back. Um, but God restored Jerusalem. And so we find out that there's a guy named Zerubbabel who was a governor of that region. And, and uh, the, the next temple that gets built, which we'll be learning more about, is Zerubbabel's temple. That's the, the name that most people give it. And then there's a priest named Ezra that comes and enacts all the, all the law and, and uh, helps people return to, to Yahweh. And then there's Nehemiah who helps build the wall. And behind all this, God is restoring. He's restoring. And we hear about the difficulties along the way. Restoration can be a painful process. But it's God's heart. And so all of this, as we're... Uh, and, and then, by the way, uh, there's a genealogy in, in, uh, in chapter 2, and, it, and if you read through it, by the time you're done, you're like, oh, so glad that that chapter is over because uh, we're, we're done with all the genealogy and all the names. But essentially, what, what, the, what the chapter is saying is all the people are being restored to their places where they came from. God's restoring them. Now, <clears throat> when God restores the kingdom... This is the kingdom that the son of David will come from. God's ultimate agent for restoration. God used all sorts of agents for restoration. Some of them unknowingly like Cyrus, but many of them knowingly like Zerubbabel and Ezra and Nehemiah. And God eventually had the son of David, Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate agent for restoration. Uh, Jesus fulfilled all the law. Jesus became the, the, the new sacrifice, the final sacrifice. No other sacrifice was needed. And as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see God's, um, it's, it's sort of the, the beginning part that gives us a fuller understanding of what Jesus did for us. Um, the Jews thought if we can't return to our place, we can't restart temple sacrifice. We can't truly worship God as he's commanded us to worship. We want to, but we can't. And that's sort of us without Jesus. If we want to be restored to God, we have to have the sacrifice that Jesus gave us. Uh, no, other, no other way is provided. God sent his son to be sacrificed for our sake, uh, for all of our sin, that we don't need to stay in a place of guilt and shame, that we can be restored through Jesus and relationship with him. And so if you've ever felt guilt 
And you keep on, it keeps on coming up again and again, or, or shame, or fear, in certain circumstances, and this is a continual pattern. Jesus is the one who breaks the pattern, God, God's only solution. God doesn't want us to stay in guilt and shame and fear. He wants us to be restored through Jesus Christ, David's greater son. And that's what all of this ends up pointing towards, God's ultimate restoration. Now, in order for restoration to occur, something else had to happen before that, and that's forgiveness. You see, the people of the land had been idolatrous. Um, the, the book of Hosea talks about, God says, it's like this. It's like I married a prostitute. That's what the, my people are to me. They go after other gods. They go commit evil. They do all these things, and still I'm faithful to them. And so he sent them away for a term in order that they may learn and come back to him and be restored. But that required forgiveness. Now, we started with the Lord's Prayer this morning. And uh, if, if you remember, part of the Lord's Prayer is uh, that we will be forgiven our trespasses as we have forgiven those who have trespassed against us. It's, it's sort of a, a condition there. And you say, well, does God have conditions? And, and then in Matthew 18, we have the story of the unforgiving servant. And the idea is that there's a servant that owed something to his master, and the master um, said, I'll forgive you. And then the servant had another servant that owed him money, and he wouldn't forgive him. And then the master condemned his servant because of his lack of forgiveness. That's us, he's saying. If we have been forgiven by the master, we should forgive those who trespass against us. That's how it works. Forgiveness precedes restoration. We, as Christians, are to be agents of restoration. We are to have a heart for restoration just as God does. How can we rest restore anyone we haven't forgiven? We can't. And so if there's someone that comes to mind when you think of, I, I'm, I'm struggling, struggling to forgive this person, uh, and it may not be a grievous sin, it may just be someone that, um, something minor, but you've allowed it to kind of become a burr under the saddle and it's in between you and that relationship, or it could be something major, but either way, God calls us to forgive, and then he calls us to restore. Now, some uh, very difficult situations are hard, are really hard to do that when someone has committed a, a major sin against us. Maybe it's not possible for us to be an agent of restoration in that particular situation. But forgiveness is a gift that you give to yourself, not the other person, and that's where it starts. And so what, what we learn from Ezra and Nehemiah is we have a God with a heart to forgive and to restore, and a God that wants us to forgive and restore other people just as we have been forgiven and restored by God through Jesus Christ. We are Christians, little Christs, that are to offer forgiveness and restoration to other people just as we have received it ourselves. Now, uh, one of the things I love about all of this is Jeremiah. Uh, we read one passage from Jeremiah, but uh, this is the next one. I'd like us to, uh, to, to listen to this, and, and we'll end with this. Um, Jeremiah 29.10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, for Babylon, 
I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans of welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place which I have sent you in exile. Brothers and sisters, if you are in exile, God is the one who restores. And if you know someone who is in exile, we are to be agents of their restoration. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. There is none greater. And Lord, uh, if there is something in between us and you that, uh, that, that needs to be forgiven, we pray that you would, uh, as you did for the, the Israelites when they were in their exile, that you would bring us back. Bring us back to the land. Bring us back to our relationship with you through the hope that we have in Christ. If any are not in Christ, we pray, Lord, that we would be in that relationship, that there would be no more shame and guilt, that we would have hope in you. And Father, help us also to be agents of restoration with those we know, those who are struggling, those who need your love. Lord, help us to forgive to restore, and to love as servants of the King. In Jesus' name, amen.